0: Welcome back to The White Bikini. My name is Marie White and joining me today is my co-host Nicholas Banton. Hi, Nick.
1: Hi, Marie. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while.
0: We've been on a little summer slash July hiatus. Thank you for your patience while we reconvene today in our continuing series of the history of music in the city of brotherly love because i'm not calling it philadelphia anymore i want to bring back the energy of brotherly love that you like that
1: it is very optimistic
0: we are going to focus on 60s music to more present day how do you feel about that nick are you ready
1: i'm ready to go let's do this
0: but i do feel the need since we are discussing music to acknowledge the very sad passing of Sinead O'Connor.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that was really, really sad. Seemed to come from nowhere.
0: Or it seemed to be coming any minute.
1: Yeah, I suppose if you look at the trajectory of her life and all the tragedy that she's experienced, this is just the last one.
0: And as a woman of her generation, and when she tore up the photo of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, me, like everyone of my generation, was just so shocked But I thought there's got to be something there. But, you know, at the time, you're just you're trying to stay employed. You're in relationship. The focal point was so different than it is on this end now, if that's fair.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I think people just weren't prepared for the the scandal that was about to rock the Catholic Church and the horrors that were about to be revealed to the rest of the world. So she was ahead of her time. And like most people were ahead of their time, especially women they are made to be humiliated and they're made to suffer.
0: And she was right.
1: Ultimately, Sinead O'Connor was right.
0: But I have to say that, and I think you might agree, I know Sinead, might, she's definitely before your time. Nothing Compares to You is probably in the top 10 love songs with that haunting type of melody.
1: It really was. And no, it, not necessarily. I mean, I, I certainly remember the release. I remember how popular it became. And I, I don't know that I watched that episode of Saturday Night Live, but I certainly remember it for those reasons. Um, No, so I was aware of her impact, certainly in pop music. I didn't understand necessarily her relationship with the political positions she was taking at the time, but no, I I think I had a reasonable understanding of who Sinead O'Connor was and her, as I said, her impact to the music scene in the 1990s.
0: And honestly, I think she was what I'm going to use as kind of that first badass Courtney Love those women that weren't going to be told what to do anymore. And that was very, very shocking for women of my generation.
1: Yes. uh, The unapologetic female rock star that that was still. I mean, yes, I mean, you had Joan Jett to name a prime example, but I don't think certainly in modern in the modern sense of the word that you had that kind of liberated free spirit of a woman who was also making amazing music you know, they seem to be divorced. Yes, you had the activists and the agitators out there who were fighting for different causes, but um, single women using their celebrity to advance social justice causes, that's that's a more recent phenomenon uh, to, to the best of my knowledge. I'm sure that there are counterexamples out there, but she was taking on the most powerful institution on the planet, the Roman Catholic Church. And so she stands alone in that regard. And I think she needs to be recognized Uh, As you said, in fact, she was right.
0: And there is now floating around, you know, God bless these social medias, YouTube. There's a platform for all these old tapes and there's a Joe Pesci was on the follow up show the next Saturday night. And he went on and said he did, you know, he denounced everything she said. And I thought, you know, again after her replacing them with a patriarchal male on the next Saturday, it was just typical of that generation.
1: Exactly. So, you know, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is to maybe condemn Joe Pesci for being, let's use the controversial term of, uh, of our time, woke. Not being woke, rather. But all institutions were that way. So it's important to recognize that what's happening now in contemporary society, the anti-woke movement, what's really going on is, in fact, or I should say, illustrated by what happened with Sinead O'Connor, that the outrage, the collective outrage the seeming denunciation of her actions doesn't happen anymore. It's that major institutions, major institutions headed by, by men, th- those chauvinistic traditional attitudes are now being examined and challenged and they're being denounced. That's why you have 35, 40% of America that's losing their collective minds.
0: And then we also have to honor the passing of Tony Bennett.
1: We absolutely do. Truly distinguished man. I don't know much about his career. I mean, I understand that, you know, he was a famous crooner, but he always just seemed like just a really classy guy.
0: Yeah, I definitely he had his difficulties, I think, like most men of that generation, which is my mother's era. People turning 40, 50 in the mid to late 70s. Uh, so he did have like a lot of romantic drama, some drug issues, but he turned his life around and he really reinvented himself when he went when he went on MTV Unplugged. It it was just phenomenal. The CD was phenomenal. He opened up to a whole new generation, you know, and reinvented himself. And I have a soft spot for that because of all of the CDs I've given my mother over our lifetime One of her favorites of all was Tony Bennett, Unplugged at MTV. She used to listen to it all the time. And I actually had the honor of seeing Tony Bennett at the Man Music Center, which is an important part of Philadelphia history in the mid to late 90s, maybe even up to 2000. And he was incredible. And I thought when he came, I thought, you know what? Am I really going to see him again? It was a perfect time. I took my mother, quote, it wasn't as good as Barry Manilow at the Mm Mammoth Center, but I saw him and I'm grateful. He was incredibly gracious. He is, you know, Frank Sinatra said he is the best American singer. And, you know, may he rest in peace. He, You know, 95 is a great, great run, but we want everyone to live
1: forever. We absolutely do.
0: And then I do feel the need to also talk about uh, Randy Meisner from the Eagles. The Eagles were an important part of, you know, the pop culture and American history. And, you know, nothing to me says the 1970s like Hotel California.
1: Yes, which is still a, a relevant song today. You know, uh, so what is your, I've heard different theses, different hypotheses.
0: Are we getting We're, into sex?
1: No, 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 no. Oh. The the significance of Hotel California. For me, I, I understood how Hotel California to be a um, a reference to drug addiction.
0: I think it was more being... Hotel California came out in 1977. It might have even have been 76. I I think it dropped in the fall of 76. My recollection of it is definitely 77, the fall of 1977. But I think since we are obviously talking about music today, in my understanding and my memory, 1976 was the last pure moment of the hippie era. After 76, where we're going to get into this a little in today's topic, everything became a business in Hotel California is when i think when the eagles started they were kind of like and rightly so they were like a hippie band they lived in laurel canyon they hung out with uh linda ronstadt jackson brown joni mitchell crosby stills and nash but by 77 the music industry and the people running it realized oh my god we can make money off these idiots and i think hotel california is checking into a culture that you can never leave
1: right right interesting so So my perspective was it's about the idea of addiction, that once you start, it will always be with you. But I've never heard that before, so I don't know. Maybe your audience um, can make a contribution and maybe expound on it or offer their own interpretations of what the song means. Because ultimately, that's what art is. Art is about how the, the printed word, the painted picture, the photograph, the song, the dance, what have you, how it makes you feel and how it resonates with you. So... It'd be interesting to get some feedback because I don't think we've done that much yet. So maybe we should allow our listeners to, um, to contribute. But I go ahead. Sorry. It's OK. You ruin ruined everything. The floor is yours, madam. Thank you.
0: And I've read a lot through the Encyclopedia of Philadelphia, and I've gotten a lot of great information. So that's a great source. If anyone wants to go online and search it, it's incredible. Well past the music, but just so many things regarding Philadelphia you know it's funny you live here for your whole lifetime and again I guess maybe I'm feeling the the struggle of the grind some days but you just kind of when you're just like kind of a working stiff you don't really kind of appreciate so many things that were happening and there's just so much background information I cannot recommend the website enough it's well curated well documented well written and that's where I've gotten some of my information it's very thorough so anyone you know if anyone's interested wait I called it Philadelphia I should say the encyclopedia of the brotherly city of brotherly love
1: well I think we should uh, add it to our (laughs) social media posts right like you're helping with that that's your job
0: although Philadelphia was a trendsetter as we discussed a few episodes back in rock and roll in the late 50s and early 1960s it did lose like many cities it's prominence. it's eminent, sorry, in the mid-1960s as taste changed and music moved into new directions. And one word for that is the Beatles.
1: How did the Beatles affect Philadelphia music?
0: Well, I think it, div- it really changed American music because no one cared about American music anymore. For the record, this is before my time, Nicholas. Oh, really? But when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, it's like a switch went off. And then anyone really only cared about British music. Also, you know, talking about Philadelphia music, it was the Beatles. It was the Rolling Stones. It was Herman Hermits. So it's kind of like exactly. And let's be honest, if you look back now, it's almost like a switch went off, goes off every decade for new
1: music. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we've we've used this reference all the time. But Nirvana, when "Smells Like Teen Spirit" came on the radio, all those '90s air bands, you know, Cinderella, Rat. I think the only ones to really just imagine—if you imagine like loud music with people with large, hoofed up hair and makeup—that entire genre disappeared. Save for maybe Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and a very lucky few. And uh, yes, I, I call it the clearing the deck moment in music, almost like when uh, Run DMC and Aerosmith did Walk This Way. You're like, whoa, what is this?
0: And that's what happened and obviously I don't remember when the Beatles were, you know, on Ed Sullivan but when I speak to different generations or read it, it's almost like a switch went off along with the culture because in 1963, then Kennedy was assassinated. Then it's, it kind of Vietnam was escalating so that kind of doo-wop Love sound was starting to sound very dated as Americans felt that, you know, the country was changing and things had to be addressed, just like every generation, what we're going through now.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I, 1963 was a seminal year.
0: I think there's, I think now's a little different because I do believe that this time they might change the world. I think at the time, women were still very, um, they were getting help from the patriarchy, whether it be a husband, a job, they weren't as ready to push back. But I think younger women are willing to live a little more uncomfortably than previous generations.
1: And I think that's a consequence of third wave feminism. Um, You know, I I mean, if, if you think of first wave feminism as the right to vote and the right to own property, and the right essentially not to be the property of your husband or your father, even if it's not defined as such, essentially, that's what you were. Uh, you were you're an adult woman being a permanent, uh, having a permanent custodian, male custodian. Um, second wave feminism, I guess you would regard as um, the right to reproductive rights or reproductive freedoms. So if they're not separate, they all build on each other. But that last push, that last push for um, social independence and social equality in the boardroom, in the classroom, um, on the field, you know, we see the consequence of Title IX. You know, we're watching the Women's World Cup right now. And you could make the argument that in many ways that was part of the, the third wave feminist movement. It, it laid the foundation for that, for women to become equal participants in society.
2: And
0: I think also that I'm going to say my mother's generation, they did. They enjoyed being married. That was part of, a, you know, who they were.
1: Well, break that down. I think that's a really interesting point. They enjoyed being married. What does that mean in um, qualitative terms?
0: I think it made them feel more accepted socially and culturally. Not that the marriages were good, but putting on that whole pretense that everything was perfect. That's why they're called the silent generation. And then I think by 1963, you know, if you're talking in 1963, my sister was 10, so it's obviously not her generation, but it was more, you know, that early, like a Nora Ephron type of woman who came from a little money, could afford to get a better education. And there was like that first little, this isn't working for me anymore type of feeling that I think now women are 40 50 years past all of that to get a college education isn't such a struggle now and no one defines themselves by their romantic relationships anymore it's very unusual women and,
1: sorry go ahead i apologize no, I
0: say women and men i don't think see themselves in those roles so traditionally any longer
1: well i disagree somewhat somewhat with that uh i made the reference uh, at the top of the show where i said you know 35 40 percent of america seems to be losing their mind uh, with the changes taking place in society, the anti-woke movement, that uh, seems to be a feature of the the right, far right, some might argue. I think there is a pushback to that. I don't think it will be successful, ultimately. You know, ultimately, this whole movement would break down to, like, attacking another minority group. You know, at first it was the African-Americans, then it was the gays, now it's transgender people. Um, so how, how do you think that dynamic works?
0: I have to ask you something. You did come see me the other day at work. It was nice to see you. Were you a little shocked when I said to you that nothing has any sex titles anymore?
1: I was. I, I, I saw think, your face. I Well, I didn't think corporate America was really ready to walk the walk. I understand, or at least I understood the idea that they would put up a few transgender faces and advertise the product and it's kind of that insincere virtue signaling that you, you expect to see from large corporations that are just these empty vessels soulless that are designed to just maximize profits but to weigh into mm. the mm. dominant civil rights uh, a dominant civil right discussion of our and really put your money where your mouth is and degender everything in your product line but It was was stunning to me. It was stunning to me, not because I I have any issue with the the cause. You know, I stand firmly with my my transgender brothers and sisters out there. Um, It was more, wow, they're actually doing it. They're actually going to put their necks on the line. And uh, that's what surprised me.
0: I saw your face. I was like, oh, like because people come in and they said, oh, where's your men's fragrances? I said, we don't acknowledge gender any longer. The traditional men's fragrances to the left but feel yes. free to enjoy
1: anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I, listen, I will I will say this much. I have had some very deep, not heated, but deep and prolonged discussions with my peer group and a peer group of like-minded, very progressive, very liberal individuals. But for some of those individuals, um, this is where they're drawing the line. This is where they get off the train of what I would consider, what I would characterize as expanding civil rights and the continuation of the legacy that has been there since, I, I will say, the 13th Amendment. Because I don't necessarily think I would make an allusion to the to the Bill of Rights or anything like that because the Bill of Rights were written in contradiction to the lives and the lived experience of millions of enslaved individuals. So as far as I'm concerned, 13th Amendment was like, OK, we're going to try to take this seriously in terms of the democratic ideals. Um, but for them, This is something pernicious and dangerous and irrational. For me, um, this is a movement. This is a continuation. This is the African-American community, as far as I'm concerned, saying, hey, stand with us. We will stand with you. But I understand it's not the case. And in every iteration of the expansion of rights, we've always had that dynamic. We've always had you know, let's look back at the, the gay movement. You know, oftentimes the leaders in the gay movement were criticized and condemned for making an appeal for the expansion of social and civil rights based on the African American experience. And they were told, no, no, our march for freedom, our need for rights is somehow holier, more sacred than yours. And while the African American experience is unique and distinct and the specific horror surrounding enslavement Jim Crow, the failures of reconstruction and all those elements that are unique to the African-American experience, we're all still human beings deserving the full expression of our rights. And I think in that regard, we can see solidarity with other groups. You know, it's not about hijacking the identity of their African-American struggle for freedom in this country. It's about recognizing humanity and recognizing, oh, these people here want, they want to be treated fairly too. So that's how I see it without getting into the the biographical specifics of the, the discussion. So yes, in a very roundabout and long-winded way, the answer to your question is yes, I was stunned.
0: Yeah, I saw your face and I've had people, you know, your age, maybe a little older and I'm surprised that not that I get in altercations. My answer to everyone now is we have respect for everyone all that's exactly what our tagline is respect for all
1: true and and at the end of the day you know an aphorism I live my life by is you can't push on a rope so often I can imagine how difficult it is for you because I think there are people who are coming in that store not prepared for what you're about to tell them and they are ready to defend their political beliefs and so I, I understand I'm very empathetic to what you the position you're in where these people are willing to direct all of their um existential vitriol all their political angst towards you, as though you were responsible. Uh, so it's—I can imagine it's a tough situation to be in. So yes, yes, it's—it's it's part of the movement, part of the struggle, as far as I'm concerned, in my humble opinion. Let's get back to what we were talking. About. Let's talk about music, girl.
0: While a new homegrown style of African American music, soul music, emerged in the late 1960s and 70s. You know, that had put Philadelphia at the forefront, as we discussed in the previous episode, the city's rock and roll scene, which is what I'm focused on more today. It's that rock and roll era. I'm saying the 60s, but for me, it's more the 70s up until the 90s, because, you know, you and I have discussed this, that uh, we do want to talk about the 50 years of hip hop and acknowledge the Philadelphia hip hop scene. That'll be another episode for the hip hop aficionados, just so you know, we're not igno- we are acknowledging them next. I think that's fair.
1: Yeah, and it certainly deserves its own podcast. I mean, hip hop is the most significant genre of music on the planet right now. And, and I think we, you know, to treat it as though it were simply an extension of this discussion, I think is to miss its relevance.
0: I would never do that,
1: Nicholas. I know you wouldn't, Murray. That's why you're cool.
0: The earlier simple rock and roll style that brought Philadelphia to prominence in the late 50s evolved a decade later, which is more my era, into a hard-driving experimental type of music. Philadelphia and other cities in this country morphed into rock being psychedelic rock, progressive rock, hard rock and a new underground culture developed around them. My era is more the late 70s, but there I have to acknowledge in 1968 the Electric Factory, the first the first, you know, chapter of it. It was owned by the Spivak brothers Herb Jer- Jerry and Allen and it was managed by a young promoter named Larry Magdid, who's important in the Philadelphia rock scene. And in the late 1960s, Electric Factory featured groups such as The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, and Pink Floyd. So in the late 1960s, early 70s, people who a decade later being, uh, obviously, Jimi Hendrix was gone, Jefferson Airplane kind of crashed and burned and Janis Joplin. But The Who and Pink Floyd, when they first were touring, played these little what I'm going to call club, coffee club type of scene. But the shift from the late 1960s to the late 1970s is what is known as stadium rock. And that's where the business people who were kind of ignoring rock and roll, what, you know, past Elvis, you know, Frank Sinatra still ruled this world by in 63. Frank Sinatra, Elvis. But when the Beatles came on, it kind of shifted a whole generation, just like, as we always say, Kurt Cobain did too.
1: Yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, the stadium rock Movement or the stadium, stadium rock experience, because I mean, what's the most relevant music tour on the planet right now? Taylor Swift. Yes, and what is it?
0: Well, and Beyonce, Godfrey, you know, come on. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I listen. I, I don't need to get punched in the nose. Um, but what are they essentially?
0: They're stadium rock.
1: They're stadium rock doors.
0: But if there was a time that there wasn't stadium rock, and my memories, you know, and and right around this time too, even though we had JFK Stadium, the Spectrum was being built that stadium. So there was now a different venue to put what was actually called Arena Stadium Rock, whatever you want to call it, also leads into that Hotel California where you can check it anytime you want, but you can never leave. Because once you're on that, you know, you're into that industry, they they get a hold of you, they get your songwriting, they take your money from your concerts. The difference with the Taylor Swift now there's and i'm gonna say beyonce that they, they are business people
1: yeah and they also have a, a, a greater degree of independence either uh well they have a greater degree of independence because they're smarter and they'll learn from the mistakes of the bands of the 1970s and 80s um while you're talking at the 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 journey song you know wheels in the sky you know about this uh never-ending touring scene from one city to the next this uh as you were making the allusion to uh, hotel california how for successful rock bands this reality just this endless tour where the the record companies it owned them by body mind and soul spending 200 days 250 days a year on the road constantly touring promoting these records um performing Perhaps sometimes several shows a day, how absolutely just mind-numbingly stressful that must have been. That probably led to some of the excesses that we hear about on like I don't even know if it exists anymore. VH1 Behind the Music. I used to love that show. I thought it was so interesting.
0: Okay, remember pop-up videos?
1: And pop-up, pop-up videos. videos. How how yeah, how how those those tours, how those performance, what their lives were like in that system. And so like, you know, we have a slightly academic framework that we're examining. um, We're choosing to examine that period of history, specifically with Philadelphia music, but Philadelphia was an important city. If you wanted to make money on your own, the stadium tour, Philadelphia was an important stop. You had to do several nights in Philadelphia.
0: Yeah. And that's really the era again, the, you know, what they call the arena rock. So everything went from a small but passionate fan base, Electric Factory. I have no memory of Electric Factory in the late 60s, but my era was when the spectrum opened and became an important stop on the big time rock and roll circus. And that's exactly what happened. It was, you know, I guess my point of reference is probably more when I'm in high school um, to the early 80s. And even I'm going to say up until the late 80s, the spectrum was the place, but at the time, Again, it's that period from 77 to 87. And then 87 is when music again was starting to change. It's the, you know, it is Walk This Way. Uh, It is Do The Right Thing. So for that 10 years of that arena rock, these groups, whether it be the Eagles, whether it be Billy Joel, whether it be Pink Floyd, they were being run by white men who were running these companies. And again, it was still a generation of people that let their employer tell them what to do.
1: And, you know, an interesting backdrop that I think uh, it's useful to sprinkle in these discussions in terms of understanding the culture and why things were seemingly so conservative. 87, you're what, 12 years removed from the Vietnam War. So, I mean, think about it, think about 10 years ago and how relevant and how proximate that feels to you in, in many ways in terms of your life. I can understand it. Like, yes, if, if ten years ago you weren't married and you didn't have a child, and now you do, it seems like a world apart. But in many ways, ten years ago wasn't that far away. And so, to understand the mindset of the country, the we're, it was this, still the the age of the era of Reagan. And as I alluded to before, as I mentioned, we were a dozen years by '87. You know, Vietnam ended, I think, officially in '75. So we're 12 years removed from the Vietnam War. So those men and boys who fought in that war were still prominent, um, they're prominent in the social zeitgeist. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And how that mixture of the post-Vietnam War era, the post-1960s era with the loss of uh, the Kennedys and King, how it all came together to shape music in the late 70s, early 80s.
0: And they were still, you know, I think about my father. He was born in 21, so he would have only been in his 50s, 60s by by the 70s, early 80s. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Still a young man, by even by modern standards.
0: Yeah. So the way they, and I still think this, I think that generation, we've talked about this, they ran everything like it was a war. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was it was very the, the business was very cutthroat, and it was a zero sum game, a winner take all. And I think you actually see this in in movies like Wall Street, where the you had the ascension of the yuppie, the young urban professional, whose sole purpose in life was to make as much money as possible and consume as much. As possible, and it was a no, no take no prisoners approach. And so you're right; you definitely see the militaristic mindset woven throughout the culture in both film and music. You know, Even and if TV. Like- I mean, like, one of the most popular TV shows on in the 90 days was the A Team. What were the A Team? They're former Vietnam soldiers,
0: and they're that generation that I guess I'm going to use like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sylvester Stallone, that whole Rambo era, though I do think Sylvester Stallone has kind of uh, matured
1: out of that. Definitely put Schwarzenegger in there, too. I mean, he may still identify as a Republican, as a conservative, but not. I mean, compared to where he stands right now, um, I mean, good Lord. He sounds like Susan B. Anthony.
0: And I give him credit, you know, after everything was happening with Trump and he got on and said that he remembers the the night of the broken glass. And it really I thought, my God, we still have someone not around, but he remembers or his parents remember the Mm -hmm. night of the broken glass. And I thought it was one of the most powerful statements that he's ever contributed to this country ever.
1: Yeah, I I mean, at some point, I guess we're going to go back along with the political talking points. And really, I, I still don't think most Americans get it yet. How close this whole thing called liberal democracy came to being just snatched from underneath us while we sat there looking. So, but anyway, as you said, back to the music.
0: In the night, late 1960, rock festivals came into vogue. Electric Factory had, you know, sponsored several, which I don't remember, but it was B-Ins were very popular. You know, we've talked with a co-worker of mine about Fairmont Park mm-hmm. and Electric Factory concerts, they did close, but they became It gave birth to the Electric Factory concerts, which became one of the premier rock concert promotion companies in the nation. And I know when I was buying tickets, I was not really able. My last big, big concert at the Spectrum was U2's Acton Baby.
1: Early 90s, right?
0: Early 90s. And right then I was like... I can't do this anymore. It became very um, overwhelming, uh, a little too crazy, and kind of the magic had worn off of me at that level, or does that sound weird?
1: No, it it makes perfect sense because each tour, each um, performance, each group had to top the previous. So whether it was the volume got louder, the the pyrotechnics got more extreme, laser light shows, It just became what was like a feast for the senses, just became a barrage of the senses. So I can understand that.
0: And Acton Baby was that first little nuance of using video. So when they were on stage, there was a lot of background video. And I have to say, if I stop my, I guess, mega concert tours, I can't complain that it was with you 2 That's one of the greatest CDs of all time. And I could see Bono closely. So if I had to tap out there, it was perfect. But it became, you know what? It became like a sideshow. That's what I didn't like. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hippie at heart. I don't like all of that. Yeah, I
1: suspect, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is that the performances were greater than the music. And whenever that happens, you get yourself into trouble.
0: So while Major X played the spectrum in the late 1970s, and this is the part that I'm kind of interested in, it's smaller venues were also taking over. Again, it was like a... Kind of generation went by. It, you know, rock moved out of the underground and to the mainstream in this period, and could be heard everywhere, from corner bars to midside club, to corner bars to movie theaters. And for my aspect of this generation, it was the TLA, the Trocadera, the Tower Theater in Philadelphia in Upper Darby, Ripley's on South Street, and to me, was most important was the Chestnut Cabaret here. And in
1: Ardmore. Right. Yeah, those and, were, those are they were tiny spaces compared to arena rock bands, but they were very, very important for, to support local artists, but also even national, internationally famous artists um, would perform at these venues and you'd get that intimate rock, rock and roll experience.
0: But it also gave, which I think is more important, local bands, which is really what I'm more interested about. And we do have a guest upcoming It's kind of after the 70s, you know, after the cute little not I don't want to say cute thats disregarding like, you know, Hall and Oates made it big. But people like, uh, you know, people that did Expressway to your heart, the cameo Parkway records, it seems like everything kind of slowed down locally. And then it's it's more of that generation, which is my memory, which is, you know, the clubs was J.C. Dobbs, Kyber Pass. It's kind of like um, the Hooters, Scott McClatchy and The Stand, Mm -hmm. Tommy Cromwell and the Young Rumblers. It was from that generation that took like 10 years that if you couldn't go to the bigger venues or you were kind of getting tired of it, Philadelphia had great early rock clubs. There were small downtown rock clubs. They achieved status again in the late 70s and 80s where both local acts and emerging national and international artists could get a start and cultivate a following. You know, there was a time that there was the main point in Bryn Mawr had opened in 1964. It did close in 1981, but at the time it did help with Bruce Springsteen, a Billy Joel, and I even saw Don McLean, who wrote American Pie the year it closed. Isn't that a random story?
1: It is a very interesting story, actually. And and he I, think, po- I, think, I think for some of these musicians who were not interested in the, the greatest show on Earth performance in the arena rock, these were absolutely important venues for them to for their creativity.
0: You know, and it's hard to imagine. And like Springsteen's years at the main point are well documented. And again, you know, it just... It was probably nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty one that Don McLean popped up, and you know, back then you probably opened the newspaper up and I went and saw him and it was good, and then they'd end up closing the next year. But it's kinda of like every you know, again, it was all of those local artists that you know, just to read it's the Hollow Notes, the Hooters, George Thorogood and Destroyers, Robert Hazard, the Heroes, Cinderella, the Yum Rumblers, Pretty Poison, and the Dead Milk Milkmen. And they definitely had that era of they weren't big, but they were big enough that someone like John DeBell was playing them on MMR and that you could kind of hop in your car and drive down or even go to Ardmore and watch them. Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of little going back to like the, you know, the like the, the beat period, like that little dynamic that you could enjoy music. And when you went to see a lot of these people, they did a lot of cover things. So you kind of felt part of a bigger scene because they would play, you know, great covers but it just was a very different era that i have great memories of because it wasn't too big and they you know they were emerging stores and you really wanted to, them to succeed
1: and let's also mention this was there before ticketmaster as well
0: well yeah electric factory was the original ticketmaster
1: right right
0: so but you're right like it just it just was a fun buy but again you're right if it it was It was probably 82 till about, again, I'm going to say 1988 is that cutoff point that I do remember, because you could just kind of hop in the car and go see someone. You were promoting local bands. And at the time, also what was changing is by the late 1980s, very early 90s, um, self-promotion became easier because you weren't dependent on the men in the suit. You could kind of cut your own CD.
1: Yeah. Technology definitely helped to level the um, sort of the vertical integration that put the bands at sort of di- such a disadvantage um, in terms of creativity and also in terms of revenue. That they would get pennies on the dollar, while as you said, the guys in the suits um, were reaping the lion's share.
0: And that just doesn't happen anymore. Like going back to Taylor Swift, she plays two shows a week, and then she takes a five-day sabbatical every week. Yeah. To not wear out herself and the people that work with and her. The
1: people that work, yeah. That that's also another part of it is, and I think that recognition. Certainly in the in the eighties and the in the sort of the uh, Gordon Gecko, if you will, uh, mindset, uh, the support staff are expendable. And so this is this. These are just changes that has you know, that have occurred in our society uh, and awareness of the people driving the bus and driving the trucks and 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 the roadies bringing the stage. Um, you know, I'm sure those con- considerations. I'm sure if a guy fell off a platform, it's not like they would ignore him back in the 1980s. But they'd throw him at, throw him somewhere in the local hospital and have him replaced instantly. And and I think as though he were just like you know a, a useless cog in a machine. So I think our attitudes towards each other, if we can sort of take the meta narrative approach to this, um, as we sort of wind up wind up the conversation, is. We see that, yes, the corporations are still powerful. They're still there. They're still the drivers. They still reign the, reign in the line share. except for, you know, the, the Taylor Swifts and the Beyonce's and, and the really business savvy individuals are the ones who have had so much fame and success that they've been able to dictate the terms of the music scene. Um, but still, you know, if you're young. And you have a great idea, a great song. Look at Justin Bieber. I mean, Justin Bieber essentially became famous uh, posting on social media until he was picked up, you know, with a proper label. So there's some significant changes compared to the scene in the past, but some things remain the same.
0: Yeah, and Taylor Swift, as we know, just paid out bonuses up to $55 million.
1: Yeah, and that, that was phenomenal. And that's a recognition of how um how impactful and, and the, the, the 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 village it takes a village to you know in in almost a literal sense to make one of these great stadium tours happen i mean the, the hundreds and thousands of individuals and professionals that have to show up every day to put on these amazing performances for audiences uh it's no small feat so i was actually really impressed by her uh, social awareness and recognition that if taylor swift can afford to lose 55 million dollars from her tour a how much money she making in total and i say good for her but also just the, the 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 awareness the recognition the desire to you know show that kind of benevolence to her fellow human being to her co-workers if you will um a, a remarkable admission summary any final thoughts
0: yes and you know as we discussed in the 1970s well before i go any further is beyonce going to feel necessary to do the same like she's going to look bad now
1: i mean there's a certain degree into which uh social pressure can be useful uh this is how you do it guys you know know, in the is basically telling um all these major groups hold my beer this is how you treat people
0: and, you know, Beyonce is in her early 40s now, so she's still kind of that leftover generation that still kind of did what she was told. Taylor Swift is and is not that generation, and believe me, I work with these girls. Mm-hmm. They do... It's a struggle in the workplace only because I grew up in the generation that you did what you were told and you worked hard. Mm-hmm. These girls want to... And I'm saying girls because I work with mostly girls or however they identify as gender. Not to be disrespectful, I want to acknowledge that. They they want to enjoy their lives. And it's so stunning to me, because I grew up in an era that all we did was work. And it's not just because we needed the money, it was something almost manic about it.
1: Well, it was that puritanical work ideal that was instilled in our culture from you know 400 years ago, where we associated any sense of um, non-work as a character flaw. So it's 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 a it's a denunciation of these antiquated archetypes, social archetypes, and I and I it, like, it ties into back to the sort of the political theme that I tap into throughout the conversation, where this is why we're having 35 to 40 percent of America losing its mind because those traditional ideas, belief, aesthetics, expectations are being dismantled before their very eyes. So it it is a fascinating, um, it is a fascinating experience because music is often a leading indicator of social change because the artists are usually the first to go to the territory, to the brand new territory and experiment with new ideas way before mainstream society gets there.
0: And in the late 1970s, arena rock gave way to Stadium Rock as Mm -hmm. venues and audiences grew either larger. Philadelphia's two largest stadiums, JFK, John F. Kennedy Stadium, veteran stadium hosted a number of large scale rock concerts promoted by Electric Factory. And the biggest, of course, by far was live aid a benefit to fight world hunger held on July 13th, 1985 at JFK stadium with a simultaneous concert at Wembley stadium in London. Mm-hmm. Some a hundred thousand attendees in Philadelphia heard dozens of the biggest names in rock and roll while 2 billion people watched a TV simulcast of the concert and the event was reprised 20 years later when Philadelphia and several other cities hosted Live 8. God, remember Live 8?
1: I was there. It was one of the hottest, most densely crowded experiences of my life. You went to Live 8? I did. I did. I had to experience it or get a sense of what it represented and certainly the, the social element of it you knew that was gone. You knew this was an orchestrated effort to relive something that was more relevant and had deeper sort of interpersonal connections to, to sort of the human experience. You knew this was like a corporate version of that. Uh, but, you, still, but still, in terms of like the human experience, being around like-minded individuals in, in experiencing music and being in a crowd that large, just seemed to be an experience. I think, like, I needed to, um, I needed to have. But yeah, probably, I, there were you, no illusions that this was something um, as meaningful uh, as the first one. Go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. You're right, and you probably won't go someplace that. You probably won't do that again.
1: Like, the world has changed. Um, you know, certainly between COVID, uh, mass shooters terror attacks those i mean so yeah i mean the world is different and and, and that's not to say i mean th- this was certainly after 9 11 so it's not like we're a bunch of uh social neophytes here we understood that the world could potentially be a dangerous place but i, I think we were sufficiently removed from the experience of september 11th so we felt like large groups of human beings gathering together they didn't seem like such a bad idea had we known there was this horrible thing called covid that would not be too far away but you know my main reason for not wanting to go again is because i know it's simply a facsimile and and a poorly constructed facsimile of what these experiences must have been like whether it's live eight the original live eight excuse me the original or whether it was uh trees why am i drawing a blank on um uh the the rock concert in new york in the 1960s I'm getting old. Help me.
0: Which one? Do you mean the root? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh,
1: the 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 one in um, upstate New York.
0: Oh, Woodstock.
1: Woodstock. Oh, thank you. Nick, you're on a blank there. Uh, I, I'm trying to say Stony Brook. Stony Brook. I'm like, nope, nope. That was not. That was not the rock concert. It was not Stony Brook. Any attempt to. Aren't you remake-
0: turning sixty this year?
1: Sixty-five. Uh, any attempt to make those. You can't to re- recapture yeah, the magic. Recapture the magic. Thank you. So, Marie, who's your sponsor this week?
0: Our sponsor has been celebrating the third anniversary to the Shop on Market Street. Woo-hoo! 1314 East Market Street, Westchester, Pennsylvania. The Shop on Market Street, the daily local in Westchester's Choice Best Barbershop in Chester County, is an authentic Spacious barber shop providing haircuts and styling for men and children. Owned and operated by longtime Westchester barbers Ashley White, my niece, and Christina Hughes. Book an appointment today and find out why everyone is going there that is anybody. From kids to grandpops, college students to hipsters, is that you? Landscapers to loyals and everyone in between, whether you got long hair, short hair, or barely any hair. They cut and style the way you want. Girl, Barbers rule. Yay!
1: I'm no hipster. Hipsters are dorks.
0: You are one time. It's over. Please follow them on Instagram. You can get any information regarding their hours, directions, and you can actually book on Instagram. Thank you for joining us today on The White Bikini. Do you have anything else to say, Nick?
1: Goodbye, Marie.
0: Peace out. Oh, the good
2: life. The ideal. Yes, the good life. It makes you hide all the sadness you feel. You won't really fall in love, for you can't take the chance. Just be honest with yourself. Don't fake romance. Yes, the good life. Like the heartache When you learn you must face life alone Just remember I still want you And in case you wonder why Well just wake up Kiss the good life Good This song to Emmy Winehouse. Woo. <laughs> so just remember, I still want you, and in case you wonder why, well, just wake up, kiss the good life. Good